every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Alex Rosenblatt, CMO of Datadog, a $30 billion monitoring and security platform for cloud applications. Alex has over 15 years of enterprise software experience, including leadership roles at Symantec and Dell. He has spent the last eight plus years at Datadog and helped lead the company to its successful IPO in 2019. On this episode, Alex provides valuable insights on all things conferences and events, how Datadog will leverage them post-pandemic, how he thinks about driving pipeline via events, and who Alex believes is a mandatory early hire for all marketing teams. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Alex Rosenblatt, CMO of Datadog, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO of Caspian Studios. And today we are joined by special guest, Alex, how are you? I'm doing all right, thanks. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Super excited to be chatting with you today about Datadog, about all the cool stuff that you're doing over there as CMO. So let's get into it. How did you get started? What was your first job in demand gen? I've actually never been a like a dedicated demand gen person. Earlier on in my career, I was a lot more technical. My first, uh, I guess, gigs out of college, um, I was working a lot with dev teams. I was usually the person out with, with customers uh, for enterprise software, figuring out how to configure stuff and going back and making sure that things were going to work the way they had to, You know, taking a look at code from time to time if I had to. And I tried to start a company. I did some of the coding. My co-founder was more deeply technical. And I'd done some product management roles before. And uh, so I was like half product manager, half coding. And then my co-founder was full-time coding. And uh, what happened actually was we had a prototype. It was really good. I was able to get meetings all over town. I got really good at cold calling, really good at cold emailing, and no one wanted to try out our software. And it wasn't until we were talking to an angel investor who said, hey, if I was to give you like a million dollars right now, because I have it in the bank and you guys seem like really smart and the idea and the prototype look really compelling, but I told you that you could only use it to get customers, what would you use it on? And my co-founder and I took a look at each other like, I don't know, like, I guess we could maybe go to like a trade show or something. And I mean, that was like really, I think the pivotal moment, it really, really irked me that that was like a very clear idea and I hadn't even thought about it. And we were having all this trouble getting people to even try a prototype out for free. And um, I'd say that that kind of put me into the marketing realm. And when we decided to hang it up on that startup, I got into product marketing for technical products. Although I was never the person that was fiddling you know, with the dials for all the demand gen platforms, I was the person that was coming up with the campaigns from a conceptual angle and then working with the demand gen people that were on our team to make those into full, fully fledged campaigns. So while I've never been the person turning the dials, I've definitely done a lot of demand gen work, basically coming up with campaigns, helping execute on them and figuring out 
who is the person we're targeting, what's the problem that we're solving, and why would they want to click on this ad or sign up to this webinar or whatever the campaign is. So flash forward to today, tell us a little bit about being CMO of Datadog. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot to say. Um, you know, we, we've been very fortunate. We worked really hard. I was there from very early on. I, I started there over eight years ago when uh, it was just like 10 employees. The product uh, team is super strong. So we keep on uh, getting customers, getting their feedback, building more product for the things that they tell us that they need. And then from a go-to-market perspective, we're very well defined into the problem that we're solving with our software, who is you know suffering or who has these problems. And then using those two endpoints, we keep on finding ways to find the eyeballs of the people with the problem and be very compelling and very direct and say like, hey, if, you, if this is something that, that you need to solve, we can solve that and here's how. So from a Datadog marketing perspective, the team's grown pretty explosively and we have uh, skill sets for basically doing any kind of marketing program that you need to do globally right now. And, uh, you know, again, it went from, uh, you know, a team of one eight years ago to a fully fledged team of a hundred and some that can basically do execute on anything in any part of the world. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What? I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where we can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen and marketing secrets. So taking a step back, who are your customers? Who are you selling to? What does the market look like? Sure. So our customers are any organization that has IT infrastructure. You know, we, we have a lot of features, especially for people that are using modern infrastructure on cloud environments, but also for older infrastructures, if they've, if they've done some really complicated setups to try to mimic some of the things in cloud environments, we're a very good solution for them as well. So anybody that is an, uh, that's an engineer, whether they're a developer or whether they're a sysadmin uh, or even working on security or doing business analytics at the application level, that, and they need to get insights into their web application, we are a very, very helpful tool for them to figure out what's going on inside. And so when, you know, when you're selling into that group, are there certain personas that are part of this like buying team? Is it, is it generally a, a different group of people? Are you doing like ABM type stuff? What's your go-to-market motion here? Yeah. So um, we try to find places where those people are. So from the actual end user, it's um, uh, SRE, site reliability engineers, developers, uh, a couple of other personas that, that are, you know, kind of like subsets of that. And then as you, you go up the, uh, you know, the management tree over there, you've got first line leaders over them, directors of infrastructure, directors of engineering, all the way up to like a CTO and sometimes even a chief security officer. So from a demand gen perspective, we try to figure out where those people hang out, the kinds of places that they, you know, that they frequent, whether it's a trade show or another kind of event, or it's um, a blog or a newsletter or a podcast. From an ABM perspective, ABM's actually been, I think, in some ways a tough one for us. The specificity of the kinds of campaigns that we'd want to run, you know, we want to get so kind of razor sharp on the message to the right population. Um, a lot of the ABM campaigns, and they're getting better. You know, actually, I've seen, I think, a lot of progress in the targeting uh, over the past couple of years since we've started to experiment. But really zeroing in on the exact kinds of people that we need for a certain message has been a little bit tough from an ABM perspective. 
And, you know, I, I don't think that we've really started to get good results out of any ABM platform until like the past year. You know, I'm curious, Datadog has has kind of had this um, really interesting rise, this, you know, being a hot company, being a company that, you know, a lot of people have talked about or pointed to as this new type of, I don't, I don't know what you would call it, but th- this kind of like new wave of unicorns or, or what have you. Have you felt like being a company that might have been kind of like under the radar to some people or maybe known known in the space to being a company that's more, you know, widely identified. Is that something that like helps with with, you know, brand and helps with your personas? Or is it something that like now is, you know, a little bit just confusing for them as as you as you all grow, or maybe they don't have as as close of a relationship or something like that? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that having like a I'd say that we we didn't do any like explicit branding to to get the name recognition. We we got the name recognition because we started to have a lot of customers, and then we have you know a lot of people in those customer sites talking about us, and then the, the buzz I think grew organically. Truth be told, we didn't have like a dedicated PR person for a long time. It wasn't a huge focus for us. We spent all of our attention finding ways to get in front of potential customers and explaining who we were and seeing if they could try out the software and seeing if it would solve their problems. We focused on that explicitly. And even when we were a really small company, I mean, we were less than 20 people. We were routinely displacing much larger companies at Fortune 500 firms because we could very specifically tell that company how we were going to solve the problem that they had. And some of the bigger players that we were going up against couldn't. And, you know, we... We, we never focused on brand that much. We focused on solving a problem as a company and then me specifically for go-to-market very succinctly and very clearly explaining that we could solve the problem and then putting that, you know, putting that solution where someone that had the problem was going to find it. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. Some of those tactics that have obviously been winning for Datadog for a number of years here. What are three channels or tactics that are your most uncuttable budget items? Oh, number one, uh, events and trade shows, um, or specifically trade shows. It's been a little tough with uh, you know everybody on on lockdown, but I mean we we have a a great events playbook where. You know, we make it so that you want to see our product. And if you put us in in a trade show that has a bunch of people that that product would appeal to, like they're going to want to see it. We, we've made that a point. That would be number one. Number two would be Google AdWords. You know, I can't think of a better way to build a floor of uh, demand gen for a sales team that once you've got your campaigns tweaked and you've, you've done a bunch of experiments and you consider them to be like really prod level, you can expect with some seasonality, basically the same results month after month after month for the same campaigns. And as you keep on adding campaigns, it becomes additive and kind of like the step function, you can keep on growing the floor of it. So that's a really important one. And, you know, getting a great demand gen person that knows Google AdWords like the back of their hand, I think that that should be an early hire for any, uh, for any marketing team that's doing B2B marketing. And I'd say third would probably be Field marketing and any any way to do custom bespoke events. What I think is really great, especially if you start to get uh, some sort of uh, fragmentation in the sales team, whether you split it by vertical or whether you split it by geo, or maybe you split it by both, or maybe you split it by by company size. 
the ability to have a strong events team that can invent some kind of demand gen campaign out of thin air with some sort of compelling you know reason for people to come it's it's huge for filling in any gaps especially during uh at least in, in b2b tech we can have some pretty strong seasonality over the summer when everybody's on vacation and over the winter during the holidays but it gives you like this almost magic wand ability when you're able to execute well in field events that can paper over any gaps that the seasonality or 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 other kinds of like you know, off times for other kinds of, of campaigns, uh, you know, that they present. Yeah, let's dive into that that last one first, because I think that's really interesting. I think people struggle making good events. How do you think about, you know, making an event that actually works that, that drives pipeline? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to define your audience as narrowly as possible. Like, if you were to say, this is going to be an event tailored for X kind of person, that's probably not enough. It's like X kind of person that works on Y kind of systems that is really concerned about Z kind of things. Like you really need to get as tailored as you can. And even though at, at the beginning, it might seem restrictive when you're trying to find like a topic or something that people are going to really be drawn to, to go to an event like that, when you start to get into one of those like really narrow areas, you all of a sudden start to brainstorm when you're working with your product team or with some sort of DevRel or evangelism team, you start to like brainstorm these fantastically unique topics that probably no one has ever done a deep dive on ever before because it's it's so tailored to that one group and the topics that you come out with are so, again, just like you're never going to be able to talk about this, learn about this again, that when you start presenting that, to that that exact persona type, they're like, oh, I'm going to go to that. Like, that's awesome. I've been wondering about that for a long time. If you can couple that also with getting a really, really strong customer reference or a really strong customer to present, or even getting a couple of customers in the, in that area to be your anchors, and maybe there's going to be like a networking session afterwards, you know, that's a good way to kind of use customer marketing to um, have people um see this event as a really big draw. Once you combine those two things, you usually have events that like people immediately sign up for and have very low attrition rates. That's super fascinating. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of marketers would be concerned about like, hey, if we go really, really narrow and seven people sign up, that sales is going to be like, what the heck? But I mean, to your point, if those seven people are the most, you know, the most qualified and interesting people around that topic, then and they're really engaged, then maybe that works. Like, how did you how did you look at it for you know volume versus you know depth of engagement? Yeah, I mean, I think that going back to maybe seven people versus seventy people, if the event is kind of like eh, you might have seventy people sign up, but then it might end up being only like ten or fifteen people show up. So I'd rather go for like the seven people signing up that it's such a you know it's such a unique thing that that you're going to probably get seven out of seven people that, that are going to show up. So I think it's, it's more than, than the initial registration numbers. It's usually also the turnout. And, you know, again, I'd, I'd rather have seven super, you know, again, we can talk about volume, but at the end of the day, what really matters is the end results from this. So if you've got seven bullseye people for a topic that definitely have this problem, it's going to be easy sales conversations and they're going to probably turn into customers pretty readily if you go with something a lot broader, but you get huge numbers, great. The sales team had a lot to call on, but they spun their wheels because a lot of those people just weren't qualified for the thing that you were going for. Uh, I mean, once again, if you have a strong events team, it might be seven people in one city. But then if you do seven people in another city and then seven people in another city and you make a tour out of it, hey, maybe if you do seven cities in a month, seven times seven turns into 50, you've got 50 amazingly qualified people 
rather than one event that would have drawn 50 eh, kind of like marginally qualified people. And, you know, ultimately for the end result of getting customers, I think that going really, really narrow and finding the exact person that, that you're looking for uh, is going to end up being much better for the company. I love that. I think that's uh, very well said. And I think to put kind of an exclamation on that, I think that, you know, a lot of times, like you said, the salespeople are going to want big numbers so that they can, you know, call on a lot of that. But if your sales leadership understands how important the depth of the engagement, or if you're doing ABM or whatever, that it's not about the number of leads, it's not about, you know, turning leads over and things like that, then you should be able to get some support there. Any any ideas around messaging, you know, sales to make sure that they understand that? Yeah, you know, I think that if you if you have a good, like, trusting relationship with your sales counterpart, I think that it's usually pretty straightforward to say, like, well, I could give you a bunch of crap, or I could give you, you know, a couple of nuggets of gold. Would you rather have a few nuggets of gold or a whole bunch of dirt with the nuggets like buried in there? I think that, you know, if you put in those terms, I don't think I've ever had a sales leader say like, well, I want, I want like a <laughs> ton of dirt and having to dig through those like nuggets, of, you know, to find those nuggets of gold. Um, I think that you do have to set expectations and something that we've done really well at Datadog. And once we find a formula that works, even if it's at a very small scale, then the challenge is on us as a marketing team to figure out how do we keep on repeating this or doing it in a bigger way until we hit a ceiling where you can't do any more of it. But we have a lot of campaigns that for the most part, all do really small numbers, but they're good numbers or they're, they're good. The, the quality on these is, is good. So we keep on layering more small campaign like slices that are good. And, and that's how we end up delivering, I think, overall, a very good set of leads for the sales team to work on that uh, you know, are, are really the right people with the right problems that, that are from legitimate companies. And um, you know, we go from there. And, and it's actually interesting. We've, we've had uh, kind of a leapfrog game over the years with the sales team where we will find a bunch more events or a bunch more campaigns that work. And all of a sudden, there's a lead surplus where we don't have enough salespeople to follow up on all the leads that, that we're generating because they haven't hired as quickly or they've, they, you know, something else has happened or they've, they've been asked to do some other things like a lot more outbound prospecting or something like that. And then, you know, on the flip side, sometimes they've, they've been really productive in hiring and all of a sudden they, there's a ton more salespeople have been added and we don't have enough leads to go around at the same levels that we were, that we were giving people before. So it, you're always kind of in this uh, seesaw and um, you know, getting to that equilibrium, I think every time that we've maybe opened up the floodgates a bit more and given maybe some of the leads that we might not have passed on earlier that were a bit marginal, like no one's ever been quite happy with it. Every time that we kind of zero in on smaller numbers but quality, it seems like everything works better. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so when you're talking to your customers and having them be part of one of those events, I know everybody's like always wants to be the keynote speaker or be in charge of the 500 person webinar, a thousand person webinar, or 5,000 person webinar or whatever. Um, but when you go to those folks and you're like, Hey, it's just going to be you and seven people, but it's your peers and they really need to learn this stuff. Like, is that how you kind of message that? Or cause I could see people be like, eh, if it's just me and 10 other people, I don't know if I want to talk at this, at this event. Well, no, it's, I mean, if you're going to do this, big guns blazing webinar that you know is in a format that would expect a whole amount a huge amount of people and then the speaker sees like the seven you know they're on the participants column like yeah of course it's going to be a mismatch they're going to be like well what the hell why'd i waste my time i mean if we were really aiming for like a small group of people like that we we wouldn't want it to be a format that would be like a, a big one-way webinar we'd go and say like this is going to be 
you're going to, you're going to give your piece because you're, you're going to be the expert on this, you know, and your peers are here to learn, but there's going to be a lot of networking and there's going to be a lot of kind of round tabling where people will go back and forth and there will be, you, you will probably learn a lot from your peers as well. And if anything, you're going to make connections with, with other people in the industry that you'll be able to ask questions for the things that they know really well. Um, or, you know, you'll be able to talk shop, shoot the breeze. Um, you know, it, we'd make it more of a networking session where someone gets to be the star of the smaller group of people, or at least the discussion leader, and that they've got something to share, but they're going to probably learn quite a bit themselves as well. So jumping back to uh, trade shows, how do you approach trade shows? Are you sending a bunch of people? Or are you doing sponsorships? Are you doing, you know, certain types of activations? Or, you know, what are you thinking about uh, for trade shows and events? Yeah, well, we're, we're very fortunate. If, if anybody ever checks out the Data Dog product, it's super visual. It's super easy to see what's going on. Uh, we have a very large, very quality conscious UI UX team and everything looks beautiful. I mean, we actually, I think, have people that have like taken screenshots of certain graphs and framed them. So, you know, we have that benefit. I think that we've always had the mindset that the product speaks for itself. What we want to do is that we want to get people to see the product. So we get booths, sometimes the biggest booth that, that if it's like a great show that has a lot of people that we really want to meet, get the biggest booth that they have, we get the biggest TVs that we can possibly put on that booth. And, you know, we find ways to get people in the booth to see a demo, see what the product can do. And then uh, there's a fair amount of work internally to, to start sorting people out. You know, some people go, come in and take a look and be like, oh, that's neat. But then you'll, you'll have the people that start asking you a bunch of questions. So like, we'll be like, okay, let's move you to uh, a place where someone can sit down and, and, and have a more in-depth chat with you about what you're asking about so that we can turn around and then show another group of people, you know, the product again uh, at the booth. Sometimes marketing just boils down to who's got the biggest TV. I love it. If, if, if the product looks good, you should definitely be showing it off. I love that. It's, it's a really great insight because I think a lot of times people do shy away from, uh, from, from, you know, trying to be a, have the biggest booth or do things like that. You know, they'll try to say, Hey, well, I'm going to, you know, take my spend and I'm going to invest it in, we're going to try to be at every single conference this year, but all with, you know, maybe we have a small presence or maybe a big presence at one. How do you think about, you know, uh, spreading your chips out? I'd say um, similar to some of the commentary before about getting narrow slices. I'd rather go big to a single trade show that was a slam dunk than, you know, go small to a bunch of marginal trade shows where maybe some people worked and maybe some people didn't that we were going to meet. So in general, what we've always done is that we have found trade shows that almost everybody that's going to be at that trade show is going to be a potential user of the product. And um, those are the trade shows that we'll invest in. And we usually go with like an experimental or like, I don't know that we'll ever go with the biggest sponsorship to a trade, you know, to a trade show the first time that we go. We don't know what the population is really going to be like. We don't know what the organizers are like. We don't know how the, how the content of that show is going to come across. But if we go to a show where we meet everyone and we're like, oh man, these are all our people and we want to meet all of them, we're not shy about uh, investing up to the point where we're going to hit a ceiling that you can't meet any more people at that trade show. And you know, we've gone to some trade shows with huge presences. And I mean, whenever we have, because we, we feel really good about that investment and we know that everybody on that show floor is someone that should try this product out. Uh, I mean, those, are, those have been hands down our best demand gen campaigns ever. Yeah. And then, so are you just, you know, 
getting as many people to demos, like you said, getting as many people involved in sales? Are you sending all your sales team to that? Like, how do, how do you look at that? Or are you sending more like, you know, sales engineers? Or are you sending, you know, some of the people, like product people? Like, wh- who are the people that are going to those? How many, uh, how many, da- what is it, data dogs? What, how, what's, I don't know what your employees are called. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's what, I mean, that's what everyone calls themselves nowadays. Um, you know, it really depends. We, we actually do a very in-depth analysis. We'll take a look at, at, at the booth. We'll even take a look at the floor plan. Like, where's traffic going to be coming from? How many people do we think we're going to need? How many hours is this going to be? We'll, we'll ask the vendor, how many hours will the booth floor or will the show floor actually be open that we can expect traffic? And, you know, what of those hours are going to be kind of like a happy hour, coffee hour, something like that, where the booth is going to be overrun versus times when there's a ton of sessions that's going to kind of be a trickle of people. So based on the total amount of people that we project that are going to pass by our booth, we'll work backwards from there to figure out, okay, how many sales engineers would we need, would we need to have there to show off the product? How many uh, you know, people that would be more in like kind of a greeting capacity do we need to a- answer some basic questions or to, to just get people in, in logistically into the booth and, and sat, you know, or, well, we don't really have people sit, you know, placed into a demo. Every event, we, we look at it as, as if it were kind of, we have the same playbook, but in terms of how that, uh, who we should send, what the operation for that specific trade show should be, we look at every single one in isolation. Every event is its own entity. And even an event, the same event from year one to year two to year three to year four, like a lot of vendors change stuff. They'll increase the show. They'll change the format slightly. They'll change the hours slightly. The shows that stay static. It turns into the same people going year after year, and then they start to have attrition because, like, people are like, "Eh, I've already met all those people. I've already seen all that content. It's like a repeat of last year." And the, the shows that we've um, that we've really, really done well in are the ones that keep on changing stuff, keep on growing, and keep on finding new areas to have speakers in that attract, you know, either the next gen audience or another uh, adjacent group. So, one of the things that I've always thought um, has been a staple of well done events is getting as many of your people there wearing your merch, you know, in the t-shirts, walking around, just talking to people and pushing them back to your booth at some point in time. Because I think that part of the thing with those sort of events is there's so much going on at any given event that you want to make sure that you you don't just have kind of your, you know, the uh, the classic, what is it? The spears nets and something i don't know it's from predictable revenue back in the day but basically you want people that are out there sending people back over to the booth and people you know to get the high traffic areas you know you have the big booth and all that stuff but when you think about how important it is to have people walking around you know actually meeting people your 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 best folks on the on the job to go out and and meet people and and evangelize and and just talk to people. It's a hugely underinvested area, I think. And I know that tickets are expensive to these things, but it's like, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in for a dime, you have to be in for the dollar and try to maximize every, like you're, you know, I, I don't know if you think about metrics like this is like, how do we get every single person in the whole conference to have talked to at least one or two people from Datadog at it in the course of the two days, like that, those type of things, I don't know how you track that, but those are the sort of things where, you know, that drives word of mouth and gets people uh, to seriously consider if they haven't before. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's a, that kind of metric is exactly what we track. I mean, also going back, you know, it's I think it's really easy to see, you can ask qualitatively, 
to the sales managers, you know, what did you think of the leads from the show? Were they the right people to talk to? And, you know, you'll, you'll get, I think, a pretty honest assessment. They're like, oh my God, they were great. Please go bigger next year. Or they'll be like, eh, or people didn't really know what to say to them. It wasn't the right people. It's kind of a waste of time. I think that the other, the other part of it is you can see it quantitatively because you start to get customers out of there. Sometimes, again, if you do a good job of tailoring what you're showing in the product to the kinds of people and the problems that they have at that show, you'll start sales conversations on the floor. There's a number of customers, some of our biggest customers even, that um, passed by the booth, took a look at the demo, were like, oh, this is going to solve that problem. We took them off to the side, started a conversation, and then it, it snowballed. All of a sudden, they had their team there. All of a sudden, they had an adjacent team there. We had, you know, I mean, it, it, in multi-day shows, it, it, it's happened that someone that we never even heard of on day one, you know, like someone that, that was that, that was interested in something like ours, all of a sudden, we've got 20 people from that team. Like everyone that's at the show is, uh, you know, in some uh, restaurant, you know, table with all the laptops out going over, you know, like, okay, if I do this, how's it going to work? If I do that, how's it going to work? And we, we've had plenty of stories with large customers where we, we met them. We were literally halfway through an evaluation by the time that the show ended. And a month later, you know, we, we had a contract signed. But yeah, I to- totally agree. If you're going to go, go legitly. I mean, you know, uh, if, if, if you're not going to put a huge investment in there and you just want to maybe meet a couple of target people, I think a lot of trade shows have a very small investment tier. Like you get like literally like a pod or just like a table and uh, you can send two or three people there, maybe meet with some key customers or some key prospects or, you know, if there's someone that your sales team has been talking to, they're like, this person's going to be at the show and like send someone relative, like a VP of product out there to, to meet with them. Like you can do that. And that's a really reasonable investment that doesn't use a lot of people. But if you're going to go for like a legitimate sized booth, like go in there and meet a lot of people and, you know, make sure it's the right people and just go crazy. Um, it's, it's not just a huge monetary investment. It's a huge disruption to the people that you're sending out there. Like people that are really busy aren't going to be doing their jobs for a number of days if it's a multi-day show and then tack on a day at the beginning and a day at the end for travel, because, you know, it's probably not going to be in your hometown either. Like you're going to have somebody out for like a week, maybe most likely if it's a, if it's a big show. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the other thing that I think people do a lot of times is they'll just send a million salespeople and the salespeople are trying to talk to like very senior people. A lot of times, like, you know, the chief data officer, or, you know, whatever. And the person's like, just came off of stage, you know, earlier and it was like a keynote speaker and all this stuff. And like the last thing they want to do in this, you know, in the 48 hours that they're at this conference is like talk to a bunch of salespeople, you know? And I think it's just slightly positioning around those strategies to say, almost looking at it more as like an inbound piece and and not not trying to necessarily close the like hard close deals when they when it doesn't need to happen. Yeah. And and again, uh, that's that, that's where we say like the product should speak for itself. Like you should take a look at the product in a very, very short demo. And if this thing is not a fit, like we don't want to talk to you because you're not, you, you, you would never use something like ours and you definitely don't want to talk to us because we're just going to waste your time. What about some of your favorite campaigns or least favorite campaigns, biggest learning experiences that you've had over the past uh, handful of years? Well, I, I have an aversion to call lists personally. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times a sales leader has been like, just buy, just spend the budget to get me a call list. My people are going to go right through the call list. Like, oh, no, it's, yeah, it's non-negotiable. Yeah, no way. It's a bad idea. Uh, like, make your own call list, you know? It'll, it'll be better than what you're going to buy anyways. And nobody wants to be called. Nobody wants to be called. Nobody. Nobody wants to be called anymore. Right. 
It's just, and people who are like, well, no, some people do. It's like, okay, if out of a hundred people, three people really, really want to be called 97 don't. So like, right. That's not, that's no, those are not the odds that you want to work with. Right. I think that a kind of campaign that you have to be very careful with and you have to use it very precisely. Anytime you have any kind of like list rental, like someone that's going to send an email for something, for some kind of promotion on your behalf, like those things, if you're not careful, I think you can definitely get burned, you know, because the emails go to the wrong people. They think it's a scam. I mean, like a lot of times if you're not careful, they can turn it's in net negatives, I think, with a lot of people being like, what is this thing? Or like saying, I'm going to report you because you're trying to, you're, you're, it's a phishing scam. And it's like, no, it's, you know, you're part of this newsletter. Like we just sent it to the list in that newsletter. So I think that, that those are, are ones to handle with care. Campaigns that I like, I think, once again, for me, it starts about the population. If I can find anything that's going to put me in front of a population that I know really well, and I know exactly what are common issues or what are things that are going to delight these people, you know, I'm going to want to jump on it. And again, going back to like the, the, the last things I cut from the budget, trade shows get you there. You know, you can get some very niche trade shows uh, and then Google AdWords with campaigns that have, you know, been really optimized, lots of negative keywords, lots of experimentation, you know, all, all turning all the knobs really well. I think that those are like the two campaigns that can really get you into like this pure sliver of population where like the people that you're going to meet are definitely exactly this kind of people. And the message that you know is going to resonate with those people, like it's going to be, it's going to be just a match made in heaven. How do you view your website? Well, that's a good question. I think websites are, <laughs> are a challenging and difficult topic. I don't know if you've had the same reaction from other uh, from other guests on, on the podcast. I think that something with with the website is a lot of times you're 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 catering to multiple audiences, but there's some of the most viewed properties are you only get one shot at them. So like the homepage, you only have one shot. So you have to be very distinct about like sending someone to this path or to that path or to that path. Um, I think that the homepage, we want to try to present, put our best foot forward, explain who we are. I think if you really try to do a, a very like explicit job with sending people places, you're going to probably be nothing. You're going to be nothing to everyone, essentially. I think that what we've done a better job on is trying to control the narrative based on how you enter. So if you go come in through uh, some sort of paid advertising, we're going to have a set of pages that is very germane to that paid ad to the, what that paid advertisement was about. If you go to an event, you're going to start at a landing page that has a lot to do with what that event had to do, and it's going to lead you to more stuff that's appropriate for that. Same thing with SEO. So, and we, you know, we 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 make sure that if you're searching on a keyword, that's taking you to the right property on our site. So, you know, I think that the homepage that's probably a branding and messaging exercise that should put your best foot forward and really explain who you are as a company, have paths to other places that people might want to go to. But from a demand gen perspective, you can control the traffic from these more narrow, more long-tailed pathways, but like you know exactly who these people are, why they came and what they're looking for. And we spend the majority of our time focusing on landing pages and on entry points from the campaigns that we have control over where we very narrowly define that population. We know what they're looking for, and then we give them what they're looking for that exists on the website. Let's get into our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard 
that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, competitors, or just anyone else. Alex, have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Oh, yeah, I've had plenty of dust-ups. I think one one that, I, that you know, I, I would have still held out even to this day. It happened like over like a decade ago, even more of a decade ago. In the last company that I was in, we were acquired by what was actually our, bigger, our biggest competitor. And that was a much larger public company. And um, I, I had a PR consultant at my, at my last company that was super good for what we were doing. Like she knew all the, uh, all the journalists really well that were covering our space. She knew she could take some news and refine it so that it would, you know, really like go over well and, and, and get us a lot of bites from, from the press. And, uh, when we came on, I wanted, I wanted to keep this consultant because for our product area, she was perfect. And, uh, I, I was told, well, you, you can't do that because the budget spend that you have for that PR person we have this centralized PR team, and you're going to have to give the budget for your that you have for PR to the centralized team because that's how we do things as a company. We we all go through this centralized PR team. So I asked to see their stats. You know, I wanted to see how many stories they've gotten per product that they were serving. Like, could they match? Like, if they could match or exceed the output of the person that I was currently using, why wouldn't I want to spend that you know budget over to the centralized team? Well, guess what? They didn't have any stats there. So I said, I'm not going to, I am not going to cancel the contract and stop, you know, paying my PR consultant who's giving me great results until you can show me that you can match or exceed those person's results. Like, I'm not going to do it. That's, that would be a, a, a stupid business decision for me. Okay. I got escalated from like the, you know, from one person to a senior person over them. We had the same conversation. I got escalated from that person to that person's manager, then that person's director, then the VP, then like... Like it, I kept on escalating and having almost the same conversation. These people were getting really, really hot under the collar with me, and I wasn't. Get, you know, I had the signing power. I wasn't going to give them a cent until they proved to me that it was worth it. This turned into such an issue internally in the acquiring company that the general manager uh, flew out from Columbus, Ohio, and sat me down and said, "Like, look, I'm going to give you a buy if you don't get a lot of PR. Like, I got it. I'm not saying you're in the right." But if you just drop it, you know, you get anything you need from me for this one thing. And I'm not going to hold you accountable for not getting good press the way that you have been before. So, I, you know, by that time, I had to trade it in. But I mean, I would have held that to this day. I don't care if the head of PR at this company is, is angry at me and saying that I'm the only person that's not playing ball if they can't prove their worth and their results to me. And honestly, for that person, it should be a pretty easy thing for them to do. I mean, it's just PR is just so tricky, right? And it's like, it's the modern CMO, I think. I mean, that that kind of illustrates for like this new wave of communications, PR, you can throw analyst relations in there, you can throw in like internal comms in there as well. Like all of these functions that like pseudo fall into or under or next to marketing and have so many different reasons for being. And yet it's you know, sometimes under marketing, sometimes not. It just, it's more complicated and convoluted than ever. Yeah. Well, I think PR, I mean, a lot of areas in marketing, it's some science and a lot of art. I feel like with PR, it's, it's almost all art. Like you just have to have the sixth sense and you have to know 
your beat and the journalists that, you know, cover the beat. And uh, you just have to know when you hear something that it's going to work. And, you know, when you hear something else, it's not going to work. And you have to be upfront and say, like, that, that's not a pitch that I feel comfortable delivering to the people that cover this because they're not going to care. So again, you know, that was like, it, it does seem though, and, and I don't know if you've seen the same, there are some PR people in a, in a space that just get it. And the stuff that they pitch gets picked up on. And, you know, I can even think of a couple companies in my space. I mean, there was one company that got bought by, I can't remember who they got bought by, uh, a couple of years ago, where like literally everything that they put out there got like a ton of coverage. I mean, every month they were in the news everywhere, in the tech news at least. So, I mean, the, the PR person over there, I remember meeting her at a trade show. I'm like, man, you, you know what you're doing. Like, that, that's really good. Before we get into our final segment here, uh, quick hits, is there anything else that you, um, that you think we should, we missed or we, we should talk about here? I feel like we could go another hour because there's just so much, so many insights from Datadog over the years, but anything we missed? Yeah, I think, um, from a demand gen perspective, uh, I don't know if, if, if the listeners uh, are familiar with the sunk cost bias, but it just creeps up all the time. You don't even realize that it's happening. You found a, a campaign you thought was going to be good. You put some effort into it. It didn't work so well. You put some more effort into it. You, you know, it, you always, a little bit more effort is going to fix it. A little bit more effort is going to fix it. I think that's something for people to always be aware of. And something I think we've been very successful at at Datadog is if a program's results, no matter how we try to tweak it, after three tweaks or something, like, that thing's cut. Maybe we'll try it again in a year or two when we have some bandwidth. But if, if, if after, you know, if from the initial experiment, things didn't really work out nearly where we wanted them to. And then after one or two more tweaks, we just can't get the thing. We can't poke it to, to go anywhere. We, we cut it. We're, we're very, I, in fact, we might be like too zealous with cutting things. Maybe there's a couple of things that, they, hey, wait a minute, there's something here that we might actually be able to work with. But we're, we're pretty aggressive about cutting programs that don't work. And, um, you know, we, we've lately instituted every like 18 or 24 months trying to revisit some of the things that we thought would work because maybe maybe the conditions have changed or maybe like we have new ideas about it. But um, I, I think the worst you can do is keep on trying to push something that's just not working up the hill and expending effort on it because there might be a lot of other campaigns that actually will work and you're, the effort that you're putting on this thing that you can't ever seem to get to work might be better spent in other places. Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially when you're putting money into things that that don't have a long tail. I, this is one of the things, you know, we didn't talk about content at all today, but it's one of the things that we talk a lot about with content, um, where when you're creating investments that can perform over time, you need to think about the time horizon, right? When you're thinking about an event, you need to think about that event, you know, plus or minus whatever, three months or or maybe even the rest of the calendar year because, you know, of seasonality and buying and things like that, you know, you take a classic example, like a, you know, like a big, a, a huge conference, like, like Dreamforce, you know, that's, that's at the end of the year, very purposely before their, you know, end of quarter. But, you know, you have a lot of people um, that, you know, that aren't buying that year or that, you know, whatever that, that those sort of events end up being a trigger for them. But I think when you're, when you're spending money on, X and it's supposed to return results that quarter or earlier, and the actual campaign should have a longer tail, and then you kill it early. Then it's like, what? What did we just spend all of this time and effort and money, you know, on to make all of these assets or to do this thing, and then it ends up being, you know, never looked at again. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, in that case, if after two or three goes, better to just cut bait and try something else. Yeah, I think I think becoming enamored with any campaign. 
or just seeing the capacity, seeing the the potential, you know, capacity for lead generation they could have, or the how if, if you got it to work right, it's just going to be awesome. Uh, you know, I think that early on with, with our experimentation with some ABM platforms, that was kind of it. Like the promise of it was like almost infinite. Like anybody in the market that you want to get in front of could be a potential eyeball. But um, you know, again, with experiments with a lot of these platforms early on, up until recently, we would shelve them for like a year and then maybe take a look at them again a year later, and you know, maybe do a small experiment and again it didn't work. So I mean, I think that we've been really honest. There's no number padding. I mean, I think that we we try to actually celebrate the failures more than we do the successes. Okay, let's get to our final segment here. Quick hits. Quick hits. And this podcast, of course, is brought to you by our friends at Qualified. Everyone should go to qualified.com to learn more about Qualified's conversational marketing platform that helps you meet with VIPs in real time using live chat, chatbots, voice calls, and screen sharing. They're the best. We love Qualified. They've been with us since the beginning. Um, You just can't say enough great things about Qualified. So head to qualified.com to learn more. Qualified is quick and easy, just like these questions. Quick hits. Alex, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, if you weren't in marketing at all or even business, what do you think you'd be doing? Probably policy or politics. If we brought you back one year from now, what do you think is the biggest thing that changed? Oh, that's an, that's an easy one. Trick question. The return of live in-person events. If you had one piece of advice for a first-time CMO trying to figure out demand gen, what would it be? Don't sweat the numbers, sweat the quality. Oh, that's pretty good. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you sweat the quality? I mean, you, you better make sure that every, from a demand gen perspective, at least every single person that, that you're bringing and you're giving order to the, to the sales team is someone that you're like, this is totally a person that could be a buyer. I love it. Alex, thanks so much for joining the show. We really appreciate it. For all of our listeners, go to datadog.com to learn more. It's just really a cool company. And, uh, and as you heard here, a phenomenal marketing team. So go check them out. Cloud monitoring as a service. Go check them out. Tell your, tell your chief data officer, tell your IT team. Alex, any final thoughts? Anything to plug? We're hiring a ton. So when you, if you do go to datadog.com and if you're a marketing person, or, or an engineer, you know, or a salesperson. I mean, we're 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 lawyer. We're we're hiring all over the company. So take a look at the careers, um, you know, the careers page, and there's a lot of opportunities. And um, yeah, I've been I've been here for uh, over eight years, so I think it's a great place to work. Alex, thanks again. Take care. Thank you. The Mangen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B two B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.